How do we measure the value of art? And how do we measure its impact on audiences? What's important to them? How do we make the work interesting enough to draw them into the theater? Can we make them an active part of a collaboration, or is it simply their role to observe and appreciate? These are a few of the questions explored in the book, Counting New Beans, Intrinsic Impact and the Value of Art, a report analyzing both what theater does to audiences emotionally and intellectually, and gives us data provided by a sampling of urban and rural theaters across the country, including theaters here in New York. Hello, I'm Ben Cameron, Director for the Arts at the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, here today for the American Theater Wing. And I'm delighted to be joined by three guests who are uniquely qualified to explore and answer these questions. They are first, Alan Brown, one of the nation's leading arts researchers and management consultants. As a principal of Wolf Brown, his work focuses on understanding consumer demand for cultural experiences and providing cultural organizations, foundations, and agencies the insight, perspectives, and information we need to fulfill our promise. Recognized worldwide for his often provocative research, he is also the lead researcher and the co-author of the aforementioned Counting New Beans. Cynthia Hedstrom has worked with the Wooster Group, the internationally acclaimed theater known for its sophisticated technology and its complex cerebral work, and has served as the company's producer since 2004. She's also been the producer and programming director of the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven, Connecticut, and has served as a panelist for various funding agencies including the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York State Council on the Arts. Her writing has appeared many places and has been included in Dance Magazine and the Movement Research Journal, among others. And finally, Howard Schowitz, who is the co-founder and artistic director of the Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in Washington, D.C., a company known for its darkly comic, occasionally blistering, and overwhelmingly provocative work. He has been the visionary force behind the company for 32 seasons steering its adventurous play selection, guiding the development of dozens of new works, building a renowned acting company, and leading them in the creation of an award-winning new facility which opened in May 2005, a facility described by more than one observer as the architectural embodiment of Howard's unique and occasionally warped and twisted mind. <laughs> Welcome to you all. Thank you. Alan, I actually want to start with you. As we said, this is a new kind of research mm -hmm. for the theater field to undertake, and it actually began with an epiphany that you had at another gathering that I'm wondering <laughs> if you could share with us what that epiphany was and why this is new research. The impetus for this whole line of work was actually across town here in New York. I was sitting in the conference room of a major foundation listening to uh, a presentation on a wonderful scholarly report called Gifts of the Muse, reframing the debate about the uh, benefits of the arts by Rand Corporation. That came out in 2004, and the principal author of that study gave a very forceful presentation. And at the end of his uh, presentation, there was that wonderfully awkward moment where he opens it up for questions and no one has a question. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I raised my hand and said, uh, you know, isn't it ironic after 10 years of telling us that, that we, need measurable, uh, we need measurable outcomes, that the, the impact of the arts is intrinsic and can't be measured? Of course, that was not a very popular comment uh, for the um, evaluation director there. And um, Ed Pauley, the, the distinguished evaluation director of the Wallace Foundation, turned to me and said, Alan, if you can describe something, you can measure it. And it was a really um, uh, challenging comment for me because I hadn't thought about that really. And what he was saying is, is, is no matter how subjective 
or uh, abstract a, a phenomenon, uh, if you can describe it, you can design questions that would elicit data that would help you understand. And it was really that comment in that meeting that really turned me around and said, maybe we can uh, begin to understand how people are affected by art. Despite the fact that it's inherently idiosyncratic and on some level unknowable, the way art works on people. Prior to that, we'd been seeing years of studies about economic impact Correct. and impact on neighborhoods and things like that. Yeah. Yes, and arts, arts people are really uh, very eager to change the conversation yep. from instrumental uh, benefits, you know, art as a means of achieving some other outcome like economic impact to intrinsic benefits, which is you know, really what it's all about. Well, I think everyone was always struck with those reports about, yes, it's great that the arts leverage five to seven dollars for every dollar sold for a ticket, but nobody goes to the theater <laughs> saying, gee, if right. we go to the theater, it will leverage five dollars for the local restaurant. Let's go see a play. I'm curious then, having set that for a challenge, how did you measure it and what did you find? So if you can set the groundwork for this discussion. Well, we set out, and this work is very developmental. I'll yep. say it's been six to eight years, and there are still major questions. Um, we've looked at it statistically every which way, and our constructs of impact continue to change. Um, uh, we always lead with captivation, which is just how absorbed is someone in the experience? Are they really... Uh, completely enveloped by the work? Are they paying attention? Are they awake, really? Because if you're not awake, actually, you can't benefit from art. I love that word, captivation, because <laughs> I've said for years that the one thing you have to do in the theater is to hold the audience's attention. And you came up with a word for that sort of deep holding of the audience's attention. Sure. Well, that comes from, a, uh, there's a wonderful psychologist, psychologist Miali Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book in 1990 called Flow, the theory of the optimal experience. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. His, his, his very simple idea is that if you are fully absorbed in whatever you're doing, it's the root of happiness. Whether you're cutting the grass or washing the dishes or sitting in a theater watching a work of art, that if you're fully absorbed, uh, it's a gateway to other impacts. So we start with captivation. We've developed all sorts of indicators of emotional resonance intellectual stimulation being uh, having being challenged in some way um, or thinking about an issue or a topic that you'd not considered or another point of view other than your own uh, and then socially um, uh, being exposed to a culture other than your own is what we call social bridging uh, and also social bonding which is growing closer to your, to your own uh, a group that you identify with and then aesthetic enrichment, we've really um, developed this over years. We, we started with the idea of aesthetic growth, which is being stretched. You know, Cynthia, I imagine you think about that quite a bit, is, is really kind of exposing people to something new, different aesthetically. But we also came to realize that um, many people go to the arts to, um, to see works that they already know and love, and that that's actually uh, a big part of the value system. So we've expanded our sense of aesthetic enrichment to include both growth and this sort of revisiting familiar works. Right. Cynthia, I know, for example, that you're doing a production of Hamlet right now right. that you've done before. I'm right. curious, do you see a lot of people coming back? And 
As a company, do you think about this question of what's the experience you hope the audience will have? Well, of course. Uh, we think of that all, all the time and we're, uh, Elizabeth LeCompte, who's the director of the Worcester Group, watches every show. She sits mm. in the audience and it's important to her, for her to feel the audience mm -hmm. as she's working on a piece and she'll give notes every night or the next afternoon saying, okay, we've got to fix this, we've got to move quicker through this so that we keep the audience's attention through this part. Which is you much know. more the European system in, in mm. the United States. We're more accustomed to directors, let's say, in the regional theaters who are there through opening night and then, and then disappear. Hey, yeah. Yeah, I Good think town. in a company context like yours, that's a whole But I think this, this uh, uh, distinguishing factor between seeing something that's familiar, which Hamlet, everyone, most everyone who comes to the theater has an idea or has seen Hamlet before, and, um, and finding a way to do it so that it's a, it's a reinvention, it's a, that you're moving the theatrical practice mm -hmm. into a new, uh, uh, a new portal, you know, a new way to look at Hamlet. And that's what we try to do, which bridges both the familiar, yes, mm -hmm. we all know Hamlet, and the, um, this idea of expanding the, the aesthetic experience. Mm -hmm. Then there's a whole section in Counting New Beans of uh, interviews with artistic leaders. Uh, uh, and it's so fascinating to, to um, cause they were all asked, you know, how do you think about audience feedback and sort of how eager are you and what do you do with that information? And are you afraid of it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, and I was so struck by the openness mm -hmm. of artistic leader and that the feedback process is really essential. So yes. many of them in the book talk about that experience mm -hmm. of standing in the back of the house and kind of feeling the audience, right. which to me is the central activity of an artistic director mm -hmm. and, and the central source of satisfaction. When you feel what's that what's on the stage is actually clicking with your audience and kind of creating this kind of feedback loop, there's nothing like it. Mm -hmm. I, I know too in the in Counting New Beans, part of what struck all of us was the very high return rate and how eager the audience was to sure. participate in this entire adventure and have the opportunity to talk to artists and tell them what they meant because frequently they felt right. they didn't necessarily have that opportunity. Uh, we had an average response rate of 45% and it, it uh, ranged from 30% to north of 60%. And what that really says to me is that people are hungry to, to, to let you know what they felt. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not asking people about their satisfaction with the toilets or the parking. We're asking. Well, we do occasionally, but yeah, well, we yeah, yeah occasionally. It, it, it's like yeah. it, you, you get it whether you want it or not. Well, yeah, you hear those complaints. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but we're really asking people, and we don't even ask people whether they liked it or not. We're asking them how did it make them feel. Yeah. And um, my experience with artistic leaders so far is that they tend to believe the qualitative data more than the quantitative data. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of our favorite questions is, did you leave the show with unanswered questions you'd like to ask the director or mm -hmm. playwright? Mm -hmm. And about 35% of all the audiences across all the theaters we surveyed said yes. And then we asked them, what were one or two of your questions? And 99% of everyone actually wrote down their questions. 
I think artistic directors are eager for, and this is what's so exciting about the study, for authentic ways of thinking about audiences as compared to, you know, sticking your finger in the air and going, what plays will they respond to? I mean, we can go down that path and it's, it's really a, a path of death eventually. I mean, you can stave off the inevitable by sort of going, oh, if we do X play, the audiences will come. But I think the book points the way towards um, a deeper way of thinking about audiences mm -hmm. because any artistic director believes in audiences somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, no matter how edgy, avant-garde, strange, provocative you're trying to be, you actually want it to have that impact on the audience. And I, I think mm -hmm. the book helps us go, oh, we can think about them in an authentic way and, and, and sort of avoid right. the kind of, um, the, the kind of just crazy way of going, oh, basically mm -hmm. pandering to them. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know part of when you talk about the unanswered questions is just the eagerness audiences often have to want to be connected to the artistic experience or understand more about how artists work or see what happens backstage. And Cynthia, that's certainly something you all have right. tried to really connect audiences to right. through some of your video work and your online work. Can you talk about the dailies and what that is and what you're learning from that? Yeah, we started the dailies two years ago in uh, 2010, and it's a... Um, online video um, blog uh, that we post a new video every day on our website or every work day I should qualify because we do take we don't make everyone work every day and uh, we brought in a filmmaker who's part integrated into the company and he shoots anything that's going on whatever is the moment of the day some of rehearsal some of uh, arguments in the office, interviews with interns, guests, uh, you know, talking to people on the street who are in front of our theater. So you get a sense over time of all of these pieces that, are, that make up the Worcester Group. And it's um, quite open, and we try to make it playful, provocative, uh, revealing, um, and so that people can engage and get a sense of who we are and how we operate. And also a window into the work because he does, he is allowed to shoot in rehearsal. And he shoots bits mm -hmm. of performances as well. And we as a company come together and look at his edit uh, at the end of the day, every day. We try to take 15 to 20 minutes. We don't ever get precious about things. Once in a while someone will say, oh, that's too long or you can't show, you have to put a hand over my face or something. <laughs> but um, in general, it's a very quick sign off and it gets titled by the company and, with, and also tweet titled. Mm -hmm. There are two different titles, one that gets sent out uh, to, through social media and um, it's posted. So it's, it's a living part of our daily life and it reveals who we are quite, mm -hmm. uh, quite literally. What I love about it is it draws the audience into the ongoing project that the Worcester Group represents, into the sort of inquiry that the Worcester Group is, okay. rather than thinking right. of it as a series of products that get put on the stage. It's like right. each of those is part of this ongoing life. Right. And the Worcester Group has a history of trying to open up the process because we often take a long time to develop a new work. And uh, we'll show it. Uh, as a work in progress, mm -hmm. you know, maybe over two years, there'll be several periods where we're showing work mm -hmm. in progress before we feel that a work is sort of 
complete or near completion. It always seems to be developing. Mm -hmm. um, and we invite the audience in, and we often um, we invite them to give us feedback. We've even passed out cards and said, write down notes, what you think we should do with this piece. Mm -hmm. Or um, stay afterwards, you know, hang out, let's talk. Or we're going to the bar. Uh, Toad Hall is around the corner, come and talk with us. So we try to, in that process, make the work um, accessible and also for, to get to know our audience so that we have relationships with them and they feel that they can talk to us mm -hmm. and oh. give us very, uh, their real opinions. Howard, this issue about uh, relationships and connections to audiences has really been a guiding force for you all recently at Woolly Mammoth with the whole idea of a connectivity project. Yeah. Can you share with us what you, what you do and how that works? Well, it's funny because at the Worcester Group and Woolly were both part of this EMC um, innovation lab, I think a couple of years ago at the same time when they were developing the video project mm -hmm. and we were developing this connectivity concept. Um, well, uh, there's so much history behind this and I won't give all of it. Um, but we had had a long history of doing, um, I would say, fairly conventional community engagement where we work with kids and after-school programs and uh, middle schools and high schools, really wonderful programming that was changing kids' lives. But it wasn't really unified with the work we put on our stage, which for various reasons kids generally couldn't come to. Of course, they would have loved our work. It's just their parents and their teachers <laughs> wouldn't be comfortable bringing them uh, to the work at Woolly Mammoth. And so at a certain point uh, several years ago, we started to say, okay, this is two different parts of our mission, how do we find the place where they come together? Mm -hmm. And uh, essentially we made a, a sort of heart-stopping decision to, to sort of jettison all that work and start to look at the work on our stage as a, as a platform for community engagement with the nation's capital in general. And we're lucky, we're in the heart of Washington, D.C. In 2005 we had moved a stone's throw from the archives and you know down the street you can see the Navy Memorial and the, and the Washington Monument. And uh, so we'd increasingly been thinking about sort of civic discourse as a sort of uh, part of what we, mm. what we do. So connectivity was an outgrowth of that. We hosted a conference about theater and democracy, invited a lot of colleagues to give us their own thoughts about how Woolly might engage and, and develop this strategy. And without giving much of a speech, <laughs> it really has just a few key planks. One is, and, and one is that it's a separate department. It's not marketing and it's not dramaturgy, it's its own uh, uh, strategy that kind of has to be in a kind of dynamic teamwork with all the other things happening mm -hmm. at the theater. Um, I would say the key, other key concepts are what we call audience design. The idea that the audience is not just who you can get to, to, fit in, to fill your seats and pay money, but what is the conversation that the artists are trying to have through the, the work of art, through the play, and who needs to be in the audience to make that conversation a meaningful conversation, and then how can you proactively create pathways for those audiences to the work. Um, so it's a, just a slight tweak on sort of what maybe used to be called targeted marketing, but I think the important part of the tweak is that it's a design element of the show in the same way that the set is, or the costumes are, or the lighting is a sort of designed element of the show. And if you fail at that aspect of the design, you actually won't get the engagement that our, our, the core tenant of our mission statement is explosive engagement between theater artists and the community. That's the language that we've always been striving for. And then I think other key concepts are the notion of what I would call sort of total audience experience. 
Um, and I think theaters all across the country are really starting to think about this. What is every point of engagement that you're having with the audience around that particular show? And then even further, like the Worcester Group, in an ongoing way with the whole theater, uh, from the first time they see an ad to the you know, emails they get before they come to afterwards. We do a whole design of our lobby for every show. Um, for our current show, for example, You For Me For You by Mia Chung, which is about um, two North Korean sisters who attempt to defect to the United States. Um, we, uh, Jocelyn Prince, our connectivity director, arranged for uh, an art exhibit by a, a, North, a former North Korean artist who's now a defector and lives in South Korea, Song Byuk. And so th he and Mia, the playwright, are engaging with organizations all around the city who are um, interested in, the, in, in uh, Korea, North Korean, South Korean, American kind of relationships and developments. And it brings all of this vitality to the work on the stage. So I can say more, but it's, a, well, it's been transformative for us. I mean, I think you're being modest when you say it's a tweak on targeted marketing. <laughs> in an odd way, I mean, I think targeted marketing used to be, OK, so who could we get to buy a ticket? Right, what other butts yeah. could we get in the seats? Yeah, but, but when I've heard you speak about this other places, I, some, you or someone you work with has used the phrase, who has to be in the room for the play to really combust exactly. and to really realize its full potential? And that's different than, well, who would buy a ticket? You know what you know? was one of the real genesis uh, points for me? I had gotten, we have done for many years, uh, Wooly was one of the American premieres of what's now called Pay What You Can, Every, mm -hmm. but a lot of theaters do it. So we, mm -hmm. for about, I don't know, almost 25 years or more, we've done our first two previews of every show. Pay what you can. You can't get a ticket in advance. You just come two hours in advance. People stand in line. Sometimes they line up five hours in advance, and you pay whatever you want. And on average, people pay six to seven dollars. Um, and then, so we've had we'd have two nights of those audiences, and then move to our subscriber audiences, which which is a modest part of Woolies kind of overall picture, but about a third of our total audience, and always experience this kind of drop-off between the vitality of the young, more diverse, more energized audiences who come to pay what you can because they stood in line, they got to know each other, they went through a whole <laughs> experience together. Will I get a ticket? Won't I get a ticket? Um, and um, they're sitting next to people they don't know, whereas you'd move to those subscriber audiences where people were in the seat that they've been accustomed to, and they're sitting next to the same neighbors all the time. And, at a certain point, I started to say, gosh, I love these audiences. I'll never say I don't like our subscriber audiences. I love them, too. But I knew that they weren't getting the best experience mm -hmm. because it wasn't combusting mm -hmm. the way that you said. So connectivity was really grew out of a frustration of how do we make that combust combustible thing happen um, more often every night. Howard, I, I, I got a charge out of the story of Booty Candy and, uh. <laughs> and the playwright, because you do audience design, which I find really provocative, mm -hmm. uh, really radical idea, that you would ask a playwright, who do you want to communicate with? Yeah. And then you would try to go out in the community and find that. Maybe you could just tell the story of, the of Booty story. Candy and, and the kind of audience that that playwright was looking for. You may want to say a word about what Booty Candy's about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it actually, the key point is it starts with the work. It starts with what you right. put on your stage. So Booty Candy is a play that's by our now company member, Robert O'Hara, a great American playwright. It was our third project with him, and it's a, a play that we helped him uh, develop. Uh, we didn't help him. We worked together <laughs> to sort of develop. Playwrights don't need help. They need other artists to collaborate with. Um, but the play is a series of vignettes which are loosely strung together from, the, from a black gay perspective. And the content of the play is sometimes feels like a Saturday Night Live sketch. You don't know how all the pieces necessarily fit together. 
Um, they are, sometimes it's very funny, some of it's very, very serious, but there's, there's provocative and sort of open language about sexuality, uh, among other things in the play, which is, from my point of view, I haven't heard on the stage before, mm -hmm. and I won't use, I won't talk about it here, but, <laughs> but I think the play disarms audiences in many, many different ways. And, um, you know, so we had, of course, a lot of success with the LGBT audience and with gay audiences, with black audiences, with, with straight audiences, with white audiences. Um, one of the things that Robert said to us in that, in that meeting where we asked him to talk about what audiences he wanted to see was he wanted to see black churchgoers right. who he felt would be really shocked and provoked by the play. I can't say we had as much success with right. that audience. Well, I can tell you because <laughs> I studied your audience feedback for that play. Uh, and we asked people what emotions were they feeling as they left, and, and there was a wide range. Huge. I've never quite seen <laughs> such a range of, of emotions. Even in one individual. Yeah, yeah yes. Um, ha not just happy and sad, but people who were um, confused. Yep. Um, which, which, if you contextualize that with the goal of actually stretching audiences, Having someone feel a little uncomfortable walking out of that play might actually be mission accomplishment. Well, we're accustomed to that at Woolly, but yeah. the distinctive uh, experience I had with Booty Candy was this feeling that different audience members cued one another in the theater each night and gave each other permission to laugh. Mm. Um, and almost, it's almost like black, black audiences would help white audiences get over certain challenges sure. in the play, and gay audiences would help straight audiences get over certain, and vice versa. And that was really exciting and I think it bore out the contention that really diversity creates combustibility. Um, but I mean diversity across many, many dimensions, across racial and economic and, and gender and et cetera. Well, I remember, I, mean, I, I didn't see Booty Candy and I always regret I didn't see the run, but I did come down to see Clyburn Park, which you did. Uh, and I remember hearing the story about the ca a campaign largely designed to say, is your neighborhood Clyburn Park, given the changing demographics of neighborhood gentrification in Washington, D.C., in a desire to get that dynamic into the room. And at the end of the performance I attended, they said, we're going to have an audience discussion with the artist. Typically, most theaters I go to, 20 people will stay, and rest, everybody else flees for the bar. And with the exception of literally two or three people, every single mm -hmm. member of the audience sat back down and had that discussion. Right. And yeah. it was electric. Yeah. I have never seen a discussion like that in my life. And it was thrilling. And yeah. I thought, OK, this is. This is different right. than I grew up going to the theater thinking about. Well, that play hits Washington's demographic oh. and what's happening in our neighborhoods just right on, on right on the nose. But also, I think we teed the whole play up as a kind of civic conversation, yeah. so people were sort of ready for that. And among the strategies was that we worked through neighborhood bloggers and gave them special discounts. I mean, bloggers who were dealing with questions of gentrification, which the day play deals with. So it's almost like the connectivity strategy kind of put tentacles out into the community around this question of how do you personalize what's in the play in relation to your own neighborhood. And then that energy came back into the theater. Our experience has been in recent years that talkbacks are sort of uh, much more uh, lively and engaged mm -hmm. and thoughtful. And um, I don't know what happened or when this happened, but <laughs> it, it, the audience itself has educated itself, and maybe we've been doing some things right. Um, I know at the Worcester Group we try to, to draw, you know, have audiences be educated about who we are and the work and that it accumulates over time, that one piece uh, informs another piece mm -hmm. and try to build right. an audience that starts to know the work 
in the larger context and to and of course we've always tried to mix uh, visual arts, filmic, music, uh, dance audiences as well as just general theater goers and young people because of our um, the Worcester group has become part of the curriculum in a lot of universities so that there is an a built-in young audience that knows who we are just from studying us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we've we've tried to mix those audiences and to and to have them see work over a longer period of time so that they And so they're bringing more energy back to these conversations. Come back right. with a, a kind yeah. of um, much more thoughtful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're question. both doing amazing leading edge work here, in this here. area. Um, but this is also uh, uh, driven by larger trends in, in our culture. Um, the expectation of interactivity, the desire to be a co-author of the experience. Um, particularly younger consumers are really um, uh, demanding more opportunity to play an active role in all of their experiences and to provide feedback. When we go on tour now, almost always we have, um, we don't normally do a dress rehearsal and you know they, so we don't have an invited group come into dress rehearsal, but we'll have students or mm -hmm. uh, staff or uh, you know, a, a group come in and they'll observe our, our rehearsals and it's really note giving that's what they're watching. And hmm. I'm gonna remember that because we do an open tech and it's a little bit random because we try not to uh, sculpt it for the viewers, except mm -hmm. to kind of catch them up a little bit and have the director engage with them. Mm -hmm. But we haven't had them at like a note session, and that's really interesting. Well, it's unveiling the creative process, I think, is uh, this also goes into another grant initiative we've been, Ben and I have been working on called Creative Campus, um, where artists work with scholars from other disciplines scientists and so forth um, and really their common territory is the creative process and revealing the creative process and it's a very personal thing for an artist to to be willing to open up and talk about their creative process and be willing to actually hear you know receive critical feedback from other artists or, or non-artists but this is central to the success of our economy is, is creative having a creative workforce being able to compete in a global marketplace is is um, helping people be aware of their own creative processes and and I think the art sector can play a, a huge role in in helping particularly young people uh, grow an awareness of their own creative of their own sense of creativity and that creativity is not just something magical and unexplainable, it's actually something you can work at. And that's what I think you're helping, uh, helping your communities understand. Absolutely, you know, I, I remember hearing Ann Bogart talk about when she was first opening her rehearsals and the artists saying how disorienting it was because when the audience was in the room, they were not clear to whom they were to perform. Were they playing right. to Anne? Were they playing to the audience? Right. Where was their attention to go? And so there was some negotiation around that. But on the heels of that, another theater said, we had a breakthrough on this when we realized that what would help that exchange most from the audience viewpoint was, they said, we have those infrared hearing things all the time. So we pass them out to the people who come in from off the street and we have somebody in the booth 
explaining over the infrareds what's going on so that somebody in the booth is saying, right. okay, what they're doing now is they're taping the set or right. what they're doing now is they don't, because often it, the, the exchange didn't happen because the audience simply didn't know what it was. It's like they a foreign language they right, were watching. Exactly. <laughs> it was like the subtitle saying this is what's going and it sort of transformed that. You know, it's so interesting because we're, uh, we've been thinking about streaming uh, rehearsals yeah. to kind of open uh -huh. up the, the process further. And uh, the model that we're looking at is the sports uh, booth uh -huh. so that there are commentators. Because uh -huh. if you just stream rehearsal on a... Right, uh, a lot of it's looking, boring. <laughs> it's so Yeah, tedious. exactly. And, uh, but if you have a commentator Absolutely. who can say, okay, now right. they're working on this and fill in cool. background and tell a little story. And a couple months ago, I was speaking with a woman in Toronto who trains the people who do audio descriptions for the blind. I thought, wow, what, what, you know, what an amazing... Uh, experience that must be and as we were speaking it uh, it really started to impress me of why do you have to be blind to get an audio description of you know so, and it, it really occurred to me that some people and I know this is blasphemous right that some people would love to have someone whispering in their ear about what's about to happen kind of like the director's cut on a DVD yep. it's not for everyone mm -hmm. And, and you can certainly argue it would be counter, it would be antithetical to the art itself, but perhaps framing it as an educational experience for a small number of people, it could be hugely uh, helpful in bringing people into an art form that they find mysterious. <laughs> well, and when you open that window, it just reminds me, we, we may have been saying the audience like it was this uniform thing, and part of what you, you explore a little bit in Counting New Beans is are these issues and how you behave and the barriers and the challenges different for audiences of different ages, of different races, of different yeah. physical abilities? And so are they? I mean, are you finding that you need to think this differently depending on what kind of audience you're, you're reaching? I mean, you said you had a young audience. Do you find that how you think about them is universally applicable to the rest of your audience or not? Well, actually, we uh, it's interesting because we took Hamlet to the Ringling Festival last year. Uh, which is, is in cir Sarasota, mm -hmm. Florida, which has a, an elderly audience, mostly retirees. Huh. And they were just as lively as our, and engaged and interested and gave, and we had as interesting feedback and talkbacks with them mm -hmm. as with uh, young people. So I'm not sure that we treat our audiences differently. We do think when we tour, we are very conscious of what materials we get put into the program to help people into the production. Sometimes we include essays, obviously synopses, sometimes we have surtitles, sometimes we don't. You know, that we, how to help them uh, enter the world of the, of the particular performance. We do a lot of thinking around that. Howard, how about for you? You find that true? Well, yeah, increasingly, uh, well, subscriptions, which is, let's say, the old model that grew up in an era of a more homogeneous audience, uh, where it was a little bit of, you know, in the Danny Newman days, the sort of, sort of one-size-fits-all package. Obviously, we've come, come way past that as a field in general. I'm sure Alan could talk about it much more than I could. Um, but I do think that it, it's challenging now because I feel like uh, the responsibility is to look at each thing that we're doing, each play, and to sort of go, you know, wh who is it speaking to? 
and uh, th there is this feeling that you have to kind of go out and manufacture an audience for every ply, but that's exciting. Um, and that's the process that we're engaged in at Woolley all the time, really subscriptions for, we've been a more of a single ticket driven theater company. Uh -huh. We're not like one of the big subscription houses. So subscriptions have just accounted for maybe a third. Um, but I would say that it's required a level of teamwork from everyone at the theater uh, between the dramaturg who's working on the play and the marketing person and the connectivity director to figure out how, to all, how does all of their work kind of line up together and for a while we worked on something called a point of entry and we've sort of modified that which is like a simple question or a phrase or something. You, you mentioned the one for Clyburn Park is your neighborhood Clyburn Park. We haven't always hit on one that was that perfect for every show, um, but a way of framing the dialogue, framing the engagement, um, so that everybody on the staff is sort of all working towards the same, the, the sa in the same direction. So we've experimented with that a great deal. Have we always thought of audiences this way or is this different? I mean, it used to feel like, I mean, sort of like you said, it used to be get them in the door once, get them to come back a second time, yeah. make them a subscriber, and then turn them into a donor. There was this magical was ladder, yeah, was ladder of ladder. increased yeah. involvement yeah. and giving and, and et cetera. It's, it's actually, uh, I think of it as a, as a circle. And, and uh, from a research standpoint, we know so little about the lifetime arc of, in, of involvement that an individual has through an art form. But we know that people have very different relationships with different art forms. Mm -hmm. so, so the same individual might be a very sophisticated theater goer, but really know not much about dance, for example. But we do know that, that on average, younger people coming to the theater don't have as much education in the arts as they once did. With the collapse of the arts education system in the United States now really 40 years, so what that means is, on average, more people are showing up and, and wanting what I call interpretive assistance, hmm. wanting hmm. some help uh, explaining the work. And so I think you're right on target, Howard, saying that you're providing people with ways in. You know, and, and different people want, like different ways into the work. For some people, it's studying the, the script, actually reading a book beforehand. I'm shocked on surveys how many people say they check Wikipedia mm -hmm. uh, as a way of preparing for a theatrical performance. Mm -hmm. um, but it really speaks to this overarching trend in American audiences, which is the diversification of tastes. Not only demographic diversification, but the different definitions of what is a successful evening out. And, and for some people, it's, it's sitting quietly and for other people, it's a much more active and much more social experience. Well, can you elaborate on that, exactly on that last point about when you said with the decline of arts education, some of our assumptions about the title or the notion of theater in this case being the sufficient draw right. may or may not be as salient or as powerful a force to get people in the theater as other factors, especially for a younger generation. Can, right. you, can you talk about some of the differences you found? Well, I think to, to a large extent, what theaters are selling is not what people are buying mm -hmm. uh, in, in the sense that uh, particularly those who are less familiar with the art form the, the social dimension of the experience is really paramount. And I, I hate to say it, but what actually gets people out of the house often is the promise of a fulfilling social experience, mm -hmm. a high quality night out with your spouse or partner, or um, 
with friends. And, and for many people, including many subscribers who actually subscribe a year in advance and actually forget what they're going to see, right. <laughs> the, the, I call it relationship value, is, is, is people use arts experiences as a way of nurturing and reinforcing their personal relationships. And uh, the question for us is, are we reinforcing? I think what you said is, we're not necessarily selling that, highlighting that, uh, essentially greasing the wheels of that as in the way that we could. Um, yeah, or, or just uh, presuming it happens by itself, and it, it does, but most people who go to the theater don't really make personal contact with strangers unless you've designed a social event where that can happen. And, and I've often uh, wished that theaters would have a space in the theater, in the lobby or somewhere else where, where where it was the norm for strangers to walk up to other people they don't know and ask, what did you think? That was actually one of the first goals of connectivity was, uh -huh. we, we, we use this phrase, phrase, consequential strangers. Our very first uh -huh. connectivity activity ever was to do a set of fortune cookies, and we're not the first to have done this, where there were five questions about the show. Uh -huh. And what happened was, so, and they were free, so you'd take a fortune cookie, it would have a little question about the show, this was usually at an admission, and it would encourage you to want to know what the other four questions were, because we let people know that there were five of them. And so it created these little connections. We've gotten more sophisticated about this since then, but it was still a very effective little tool. Right. Yeah. And some people prefer to react in social media, uh, because that's how, that, that's how they're wired. Other people prefer to go home and reflect quietly, and maybe a week later, read. Or many people like to read a review by a critic, and and in doing so, they're reflecting on their own experience. So, there's so many different modalities of making meaning from a work of art, and I think this is a, such an exciting time in the field now because theaters like the Worcester Group and Woolly Mammoth are really experimenting and really working out this portfolio of practices of how to engage audiences. Well, I know in a report you did for the Irvine Foundation called Getting In on the Act, you actually began to suggest that as a theater field, we've been um, overwhelmingly focused on the traditional performance audience exchange, but that that might be just one piece in a much broader spectrum of what audience interaction might mean. Can you explain a little bit about what you outlined in that report? The Irvine uh, Foundation commissioned uh, um, uh, kind of a uh, assessment of this landscape of active participation, and particularly what what arts groups are doing to offer active opportunities for participation. And we found so many wonderful, wonderfully creative practices in Europe and in the U.S. and Australia, including in the theater field. Of course, there's a long history of community-based work that, that is participatory in nature. Uh, but invite, my, my favorite example of, part, of active participation is slash fiction, you know, people rewriting the end of a book or a movie, um, often with a prurient interest. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, people love to do that. Um, and many people actually will accept the challenge, and, and the challenge to, to theaters and other artistic organizations is actually curating at a very high level the active engagement. 
And that, that can, and that can be a critical part of the making of the work. I mean, that, that kind of uh, curating and, and active engagement with the audience can happen all through the life right. of creating a work over, mm -hmm. over many years sometimes. Obviously, we have theaters like Cornerstone for whom that's a, a core principle. I saw a piece in Poland just a couple of years ago which began with a kind of a set of questions to people in a particular community outside of Krakow. It was called Supernova. And the piece ended up mirroring back to them mm -hmm. in a very avant-garde way that I think the Worcester Group would have been proud of. But it was really interesting how because of the community engagement in a working class community, this audience was very, very uh, engaged in something that by American standards would have felt very, very weird. Um, so that, that sort of transparency and engagement through the process can change people's aesthetic receptiveness um, for the work itself. I think also the, uh, what we find with our video blog, The Dailies, is that people interact mm -hmm. um, online quite easily and quickly and that we get a lot of um, response that way and some of which we, re we engage with. And also, once in a while, someone will take a, a video blog and remake it for themselves. That's and, wonderful. And it'll get posted. So, you know, there's a, it, it, it has a, there's an engagement that mm -hmm. goes on that's, that's really uh, kind of odd that, you know, it's Do not. Do you ever feel like you're losing control? Oh, delightfully, yes. <laughs> well, that's an interesting word because that is, what the, when you right. said the biggest challenge is about curating, I thought, no, the biggest challenge is embracing a loss of control because every right. time you take that step further to inviting the participation, the traditional control we've held right. is weakened or diminished. I mean, all of this makes me ask, how does, the, it's the beginning of your planning for your next cycle. <laughs> How does everything we've said so far fundamentally change or influence your conception of what it is you're even going to do in the future, or does it? Is this still, you commit to the work you want to do, and then you figure all this out after the fact? You, you know, personally, I'm very torn about this because, yeah. um, because the process of picking plays, let's say, just to, to be crass, at Woolly Mammoth has gotten much, much more complex mm -hmm. over the last five or six years. We've grown, there's more voices involved, and we're intentionally bringing more voices to the table so that we're looking at a play from multiple perspectives. So our connectivity director is going to read plays that we're considering and, and help us think about what are the um, opportunities that the play presents for our, our engagement with the community and our and our finance director or our production manager is going to you know look at the the budget for it etc. Um, and I love that process. It sort of really opened it up for me because Wooly was very much a personal in my pocket uh, kind of play selection process. Mm -hmm. I think the hard part of it is at the same time that that process gets more multifaceted with more points of input. Um, I have to keep working to keep in touch with, you know, that sort of little voice inside myself that says, hmm, this feels right right now for me or for us as a company or for the artists at the theater. And we've been, um, over the last few years, sort of studying, I think, some of the different values that have shown up in our play selection process and trying to understand how they play out, but at the, bottom, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of it is just some intuition that you have about a particular play or, mm -hmm. or a particular project that you want to undertake, and you, I think you can't lose touch with that voice. And do you even consciously look at, as you begin to predict what a potential season would do, how many different audiences that would impact in the Washington area, and do you ever say, oh, oh, 
we're not covering enough different audiences? Or wait, we're, do, we're spending too much time with this group? Or does that begin to color this choice in any way or no? I think that we do some of that, uh, especially from a diversity perspective, which has been a historically very important part of Woolley's thinking, and, and from a tonal balance and, and all of those things. But I think the biggest change has been asking ourselves, what's the conversation embedded in the play? And if we can't articulate for ourselves right. a conversation that seems important for us as a group of artists and for the community we're in, we're not likely to do the play. And that's changed the character of the work that we pick. Right. Well, and Cynthia, I know for your theater, I mean, unlike Howard's Theater, which is a sort of collective and you'll hire many different directors right. and actors come and go, et cetera, and you'll tell me that this is entirely wrong. So I, I preface this. So much, I, with the exception of a single production, I always associate the work of the Wooster being grounded in the singular vision and, and artistic impulse of Elizabeth LeCompte, who is one of the great artists of this country or of the world, and yet who I often think of more like I think of Picasso or Jackson Pollock. I mean, so driven by an artistic impulse that I wonder whether these questions of audience even filter into the consciousness and the planning, or if the, if well, if I would relates. say that um, when we're choosing a project, mm -hmm. uh, we're not thinking about the audience. We're thinking about does this project I mean is it important for us? Right. It doesn't speak to us. Um, but once we get in the room. Uh, it, there's always an audience. I mean, interns come in, uh, mm. visitors, observers come in, and so uh, we're always thinking about the audience. And mm. you know, we're uh, dependent on box office and touring. So, you know, fifty to sixty percent of our income comes from uh, an audience, mm. and so it's we don't. Um, it's not like we're choosing plays saying we want to reach these particular segments of the community. We're thinking we want to make our work and our work will speak because we're, um, uh, you know, we're changing the world right now. You and are. so it's important that everyone in the world see this work. And so it's that kind of impulse that we want to reach everybody. And, um, you know, uh, realistically, we're not going to reach everybody, and not everyone is going to be, uh, you know, as enthusiastic about our work as we are. But um, I think that's the impulse. We're changing the world, and we want everyone to see it. I have a, I have a, a piece of paper up on my desk that I put up there a few years ago. It says, From Woolly to the World. And somehow that sort of missionary sort of impulse, that you're doing work that's important, and you want people to hear it, you end up internalizing your audience because you want to have an impact on your audience. So it's interesting to, to hear you say it's like it's so organic in a way. It's like part of the DNA because if, if you're an artist, you want to communicate. You know, Alan, can I ask you, uh, part of what is astounding about your work is you do the same work in the dance field, you do it in the presenting field, you've done it in the jazz field, you do it, I mean, the visual arts field, you do it writ large. I'm wondering from that exposure whether you see things in other fields that you think, boy, the theater field would be well advised to take note of this because you don't see this kind of value or this practice in the theater field, or if you see new opportunities that maybe the theater field hasn't realized that you're seeing collaborative mm. possibilities with other disciplines. 
and I know this is impressionistic, yeah. not a disciplined, rigorous study that makes you as a researcher very nervous oh, to answer oh. in a public forum, but just go for it. God, I used to be terrified of artistic directors. <laughs> uh, for good reason. Uh, but, uh, I mean, theater as an art form is, is so rich with possibility. Uh, and uh, the ability to speak to people through narrative is, is so powerful. And I'm reminded of, of how many millions of Americans are, are, are watching high-quality drama on television, just as many millions of Americans are watching dance on television. Mm. And I think a lot about the disconnect between media-based uh, participation and attendance at live. Right. And, and I wonder if, if the dance field and the theater field on some level are missing an opportunity now to connect to the American public on uh, another level uh, because and I know there's a difference between theater and drama and, and between watching something on the, a screen and being live. And from the research I've done, most people understand that. And, and they value the, the, the risk. But what's happening now is the, um, the value that people attach to a high quality digital experience is very high. It's very, very high. And so the marginal increase in value of the live experience is becoming less less and less apparent to people. I had a focus group with the, uh, in, a couple weeks ago in which a young man said, well, the only reason I go to live performances is if I can sit close to the artist and, and see them and smell them and feel them. Because if I sit in the balcony, he said, it's like a bad video. Mm. <laughs> And I thought that was so provocative. No, and so we can tend to be overprotective of that liveness. You know, it's right. something that we take pride in as a right. field, that we're in the room together and that's what the transaction is. But, but your point's really well taken. But, but being what you spoke about, both of you, about being organic and kind of of your community, and, and in no way do I mean to in any way diminish the importance of artistic integrity or, uh, or in any way undervalue the importance of the artistic impulse and the singularity of that. But if you're a larger theater company especially, you can have a conversation with your community about issues that are, uh, are relevant to your community. And I think that's that fine line between artistic, artistic integrity and community relevance that the theater field is really struggling now to kind of reconfigure is how can we lead, be leaders in our communities uh, in opening up dialogue about important issues. And, and really, I think the theater field has the, an enormous opening to be responsive to the world in which we live, the incredibly complex, politically rife world that we live in, to have these important conversations. I, it doesn't I, mean we can't entertain people too. I'm glad you used the word relevance. I mean, it's an old word, but I think it's, it's, it's an important one that's kind of coming back. I feel like we need to make the case for relevance, mm -hmm. both in the work that we do and in how we, how we use that work as a platform for this larger engagement. It's also a challenge for artists, really. I mean, it's a new day. And um, the, the, the hardest thing I see arts groups do, have to do is to kind of make incremental adjustments to shifting public tastes. Mm. Because it's invisible. You don't see it. You can't measure it. Uh, but I'm aware there are more and more artists who are 
really wanting to have this direct connection with their audience uh, and make work um, that is interactive um, and extremely um, personalized. You know, I hate to do this, but I know we're coming into home plate and having started with the intrinsic value of the arts and captivation and delight and inspiration and so much of else what you talk about in your book. And I know that you're discovering you're in theaters. I thought maybe it would be appropriate to close with a quote I ran across from Oliver Sacks several weeks ago in The New Yorker when he wrote, to live on a day-to-day -day basis is insufficient for human beings. We need to transcend, transport, escape. We need meaning, understanding, and explanation. We need to see overall patterns in our lives. We need hope, the sense of a future. And we need freedom, or at least the illusion of freedom, to get beyond ourselves, whether with telescopes and microscopes or in our overburgeoning technology, or in states of mind that allow us to travel to other worlds, to rise above our immediate surroundings. We all seek a holiday from our inner and outer restrictions, a more intense sense of the here and now, the beauty and the value of the world in which we live. You know, I'd like to thank all of our panelists, Cynthia, you especially, and Howard, you, for providing us that sense of meaning and beauty and value in the world in which we live. Alan, our thanks to you for helping us understand and show the way. And for those of you watching, our thanks to you for joining us with this conversation. We hope that we will see you in a theater soon and often. These programs are brought to you in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of American Theater Wing, I'm Ben Cameron, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theater. There is so much more to the American Theatre Wing than just the Tony Awards. The American Theatre Wing's website has a wealth of information. There's about 700 hours of material on the website. <laughs> 700 hours? That's a lot of material. Here's the jam, everybody. It's free. There are videos, there are podcasts that you can download right onto your iPod. You see artists talking about what inspires them and why they got into the business. It's great to be able to hear people like Stephen Sondheim, Patti Lapone, Doug Wright, Scott Ellis, Donna McKechnie. Programs like Springboard NYC and the Theater Intern Group are great opportunities for young people who are trying to get into the business. The Jonathan Larson grants for new composers are great. And it's just another example of how The Wing is doing wonderful work in fostering the talents of young writers and artists. What the American Theatre Wing does with these programs is it immerses you with artists currently working the business. What the Wing provides is inspiration. I'm Jen Damiano. I'm Hunter Bell. I'm Bobby Steggert. I'm Saikon Simbla. If you love theater, go to americantheaterwing.org. It's all there on americantheaterwing.org. Click over and check it out. You might learn something. Thank you.